You asked for it. You got it. We brought back the one, the only, Rev Naftali Horowitz to or talk. Mark Horowitz. Some people know yes, him Yes, some people call him Mark in the finance field. He was an epic guest. We had him for episode two. And that video, as of this recording, has over 700,000 views. So if you watch this episode, head over to episode two afterwards. We wanted to discuss investing. That's his bread and butter. We went through it. So much of it is emotion. He, it's unbelievable how eloquent he is and calm and collected. And as I always say, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Yeah, it's really good. Um, and we do like a little test on it also. That was yes, a little fun. Yes, he uh, tested us. Uh, we went through biases that people have as it relates to investing. He spoke about whether or not he can give specific stock tips, mm. you know, companies. Kosher money. Spoiler. He's not able to. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, but it was certainly a very interesting episode, enlightening, and God willing, this will help a tremendous amount of people. This week's episode is sponsored yet again by Kolel Chabad. The best. And approved funding. The best. You can't say the best with one and not the other. They're, They're both, both the, best. the best in their own fields. Ooh, I like it. Without further ado, Reb Naftali Harwitz. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Welcome back, Reb Naftali Harwitz. We've never said that on this Kosher Money series. Our first returning guest, so I think you did something right the first time around. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So in this particular episode, we wanted to start off talking about investing. People always submit questions related to it. Some people know more than others. Some people are scared by the idea. Is the stock market gambling just a form of professional gambling? The answer is it depends on how you go about investing. There are people who definitely use the stock market as a gambling mechanism, um, but that's not what it was intended for, and that's not certainly not the way that you can maximize its potential. The stock market itself is a representation of all of the publicly traded companies in the world that produce real goods and real services. So it in and of itself is definitely not a casino. You're buying real, tangible shares in real companies that produce goods and services. Um, And you're investing in the long-term prospects of those companies. So it's easier to connect the idea of investing to individual companies versus the market. The market sounds like some some like casino, right? Mm-hmm. It's a market. It's a racetrack. <laughs> Call it whatever you want. When you think about the individual companies in and of themselves, you can start to connect. Well, I own a piece of Apple. Apple creates this. Apple creates earnings. Apple creates jobs. I use their products and services. I believe that more people will be buying these services and these devices in the future. And there's all kinds of fundamental reasons why Apple should grow its earnings over time. And that's essentially what I'm investing in. Me being someone who has a nine-to-five job, 
doesn't have the time to evaluate <clears throat> the prospects of a company like Apple. I, I assume they're creating jobs and they're making money, but if I were to open up one of my stock trading apps and pick Apple because they're a well-known name, that isn't necessarily a wise decision, right? Should should the everyday Joe be researching these companies in some ways? I know in the past you've recommended index funds, and that's a safe way to start uh, investing. But if someone were to pick individual stocks, and you said long term, right? We're not talking here about day traders, and we can get into that soon. Should someone be doing his due diligence before selecting stocks? Or should he be relying on someone for that decision? How much due diligence should he do? So indexing is a great way to access the market. Um, It's the way that you can buy something and literally forget about it because you're investing in capitalism for the long term and the market will always represent in the right proportion the most successful companies and let me explain what that means if you look at the construction of the S&P 500 today and you break it down by sectors or you look at the top 10 stocks that represent the greatest weighting in the S&P 500 let me back up and explain what that means as well, okay? There are all kinds of indexes out there. The S&P is the most widely quoted index. It's one of the most efficient indexes that exist or indices that exist. It's a, it's a market cap weighted index, which means that as a company grows in its value, it will become a greater and greater part of the index, Okay? So what's going to happen is the most successful companies will enter the index when they hit the 500. So the 500 companies in the S&P are the largest 500 companies in the United States. Apple, for example, started off its life as a small cap company. It was not in the S&P. It moved its way up into the mid-cap realm, and then it made its way into the S&P. And then it moved its way up and up and up and up into the S&P, until it became one of the largest, or the top five holdings in the S&P. Now think about it. If you bought the S&P 30 years ago, you didn't have any Apple in your portfolio. Today, you have a large weighting in Apple. Mm. And what you did was, by just sticking with the index, you ended up owning one of the most successful companies in the history of the world, if not the most successful company. Now, that's a beautiful mechanism, which is why I love indexing. So you have this, let me give you an example. I have Client A. Mm-hmm. Client A is 85 years old. Client A grew up in a world where railroads and utilities and banks were companies that you owned. And he bought a portfolio of individual stocks. And he just holds on to these stocks and he maybe even has a stock certificates in his drawer, something which is a relic of the past. Now, this guy has missed out on the greatest innovation revolution in history because he doesn't own a single share of a technology company. 87-year-old B client investor bought the S&P. And at the time, he looked at the S&P and said, oh, look at those big railroads and all those banks. I like this index. And instead of buying the companies, he bought the index and he just put it in his drawer. And now, 30, 40 years later, Without him doing anything, his entire portfolio has changed and is evolved into what is today the revolution of technology without him doing anything. 
and his returns versus investor A are going to be vastly different, vastly different, which is the beauty of indexing. So the S&P today, the greatest weighting in it is technology. I know when I started my career, it was not technology. Right? And the top 10 holdings of the S&P are predominantly technology companies. Now, why should anybody invest in individual stocks? There are a couple of reasons. That was my next question. You've painted such a beautiful exactly. picture as to why someone should invest in an index where I'm going to stay away from whatever the new railroad company is in 2022. and Let the index tell mm-hmm. me what to own, right? The reason why people invest in individual stocks are many, and I've studied this psychology over the years, and we could talk a lot about psychology, which is so much of investing. I think the first and foremost reason is some people actually enjoy it. They don't just use investing as a means to grow their wealth. They find it engaging and interesting and challenging. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have many clients who have the vast majority of their wealth in indexes. But they like to have an account where we can have a spirited debate about whether NVIDIA or AMD, for example, is the next greatest chip company. And they like to bet on things and become connected to things, which is, which is an important part of investing. They get a thrill out of it. And you know what? If that's what you enjoy, why not? As long as you know what you're doing and... If you don't really know what you're doing, you don't invest more than you can afford to lose. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's reason number one. Reason number two is that there are professional investors who feel that by drilling down and owning the individual companies, you can do better than the index. So I have clients, for example, that come from the world of e-commerce. And they're very familiar with the companies, the infrastructure companies of e-commerce. And they invest heavily in companies which they have high conviction for, another important part of investing which we can talk about. And they say, I think that my knowledge, my insights into the way e-commerce works will lead me to have a better outcome than if I just invested in the S&P. Okay? Just one other important point. There are many, many types of indices out there. It isn't just the S&P. The S&P is plain vanilla. But today, with the proliferation of ETFs, there are literally hundreds of different sector indexes that you can buy that you can capture. So, for example, there's you know, um, Facebook, as an example, falls into the communications sector. And you can buy that. It's an index. Um, technology is an index, banking is an index, biotech is an index. But today, the index companies create all kinds of sectorized indexes. So if somebody, for example, has strong conviction for technology or for e-commerce and things like that, they can buy the S&P and they can complement that with an overweight to one of these specific sector funds. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the everyday Joe, if he were gonna, if he was going to buy stocks, he would either have to be very educated or somewhat educated on what he's doing, or if he's doing it as a hobby, entertainment, <clears throat> something in that focus, he would be doing it with 
not too much money. We don't want him to, you know, bet his house on on conviction on something he feels um, convicted about. Exactly. Um, but let me just go to the fun part for a second, okay? Um, again, just so compliance doesn't put me in handcuffs. If I use the name of a company on this podcast, it's in no way an endorsement to buy this company, and I'm no way recommending that anybody buy this, anybody buy this company. But to talk about individual companies makes it a little bit more interesting, interesting. right? So when I was in the printing business many years ago, um, I edited a book for a very famous investor. I enjoyed reading the book. I found all kinds of things that I would have written better, and I made all these corrections to his book. Um, that's what you do when you have chutzpah at 27. But I learned a lot from this book. And one of the things I learned from this book is that some of the most successful investments people make are buying things that they see and use every single day and feel a tremendous connection or affinity for, such as Apple. I mean, people who saw Apple as a great consumer company years ago didn't do much thinking about it and said, oh my gosh, I love this thing, and they bought the stock. So my first shares of Amazon, I thank my UPS driver for. Mm. I got good friends with my UPS driver, and one day I see him pull up in front of my house, and he rolls up the thing, and... I go to get my package so he doesn't have to schlep up my steps. And I see a bunch of those smiley faces in, his, in the back of his truck. And I say, what are those? He goes, those are Amazon boxes. I said, Amazon boxes? Oh, yeah. I said, you bring a lot of them? He goes, oh, my God. He goes, mark my words, he said, five years from now, I bet there's going to be a smiley face outside my truck. Mm. By the way, he was right. What year was this? This was about five, six years ago, maybe wow. more. Probably more. No, probably about 10 years ago. Because I bought my first shares of Amazon in the 500 to $600 range. Um, so that was 400% ago. Uh-huh. Um, I heard that from him and I said, well, he's got real information. He's delivering boxes. He's seeing the numbers exponentially go up. Well, I spent a couple of hours doing research on Amazon, and I bought my first shares of Amazon, and mm. I kept building on that position. So sometimes when you see something out there, my mother-in-law made enough money to put a down payment on a house <clears throat> by going to the store and buying beech nut baby food. Mm-hmm. And this was a revolution. There was no such a thing as baby food that you bought in the store. And she came home, and she couldn't get over this. Like, somebody actually made peaches for her. And she was talking to my father-in-law, and she's a smart woman, and she decided, let me go find out about this company. And she didn't. She bought her first shares of Beech Nut that way. So sometimes we have these epiphanies about companies, and we see things. And as we'll talk about, maybe you have to just sort of zone out of all the noise out there and say, this is a company... They're creating something real. I believe in their product. And you don't have to be a finance uh, major in college to say this is a company that's going to go places. Now, you could be wrong, but oftentimes you're going to be right. Driving around in March 2022, I can't help but notice the amount of Teslas that are being driven around, even in comparison to a year ago. Correct. You know, I would say <clears throat> the amount of Teslas I see has doubled. Would you say that is, and, and we're not talking here about stocks, but we're talking more of here, here about indicators, 
that's something if someone does see see out in the world, that's something that he should sit down by a computer, research, look at the numbers, but think about it long term. Meaning if he was to invest in a Tesla and then three days later the stock drops five percent, that doesn't mean he was wrong on his indication, correct? Correct. So this is where the psychology of investing starts to become complicated. Um, investing is a long-term proposition. The most successful investors look out into the future. They see a world not next week, not next month, 10 years from now. And you think about what are the building blocks of that new world, and those are the companies you want to buy, right? The timing of that investment and what happens in the next month or two is compl- has to be completely irrelevant, right? You have to have conviction for the long term because the market on any day or any week is going to reflect sentiment and the moodiness of the investment public. If Apple, if Apple would go down 5% or 10% or 15% or 30% because of a war in the Ukraine or because of the Fed raising infl- interest rates because of inflation, you know intuitively that 10 years from now, looking back, none of this is going to matter. Mm-hmm. None of this will matter at all. From a stock market from perspective. A stock, from, from a, even from a company perspective, mm-hmm. right? So you have to learn to zone out of the noise of the long term if you want to be a long term of the short term in order to be a long term investor. This is what I do all day with my clients. I help them refocus on what they own and why they own it and why what's going on right now is ultimately going to be irrelevant. And now a word from one of our awesome sponsors. Kolel Chabad, you've heard about them on previous episodes. They are helping Israel's neediest for the last 225 years. They're also one of the most efficient charities in the world. The percentage of every dollar donated to Kolel Chabad actually goes to help the poor and the sick of Israel. Why? Because they keep administrative costs low, at a minimum, they avoid high rents, and they have an army of volunteers helping them provide food and charity to Israel's neediest. We're talking about widows, Holocaust survivors, orphans. It's it's wonderful to see that they've been at this for so long, and they're making such a difference together with the Israeli government. So... And in business, that idea of if you're around for a very long time, it means you're doing something right. And especially with an organization, you know, organizations last for 10, 20, 30, maybe 50 years. For them being around for so long, it's just a a true testament to how incredible the work that they do and how much help they're actually providing. Well said. So visit kolelchabad.org. The link is in the show notes. And help this wonderful charity support the neediest of Israel. And now back to this week's episode. I would imagine you get phone calls all the time for people, hey, they call you Mark in the workplace. Hey, Mark, what are your stock picks? What are your top five stocks in 2022? Is this how you answer them to say, hey, let's take a a step back. Let's think more long term. What are you in it for? Um, Do you ever actually give them stock picks when when you, you know, there's a quick phone call like that? I'm sure because people, we, we said we were having you on. What are... Uh, some of the questions you have for Rabbi Horowitz, and they said, which stocks does he recommend? You know, <laughs> like they, they scour the internet to see if he's picked some and, you know, maybe using some of your 
your, your thoughts and ideas can actually be pinpointed to specific stocks without naming them. But what does that conversation look like when someone calls you and says, what are your picks? My clients don't ask me these questions. Um, my clients are very wealthy and well-advised, educated, and trained. I spend a lot of time educating my clients. Where I get people who drive me crazy are weddings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, people think that doctors get bothered at weddings. Mm-hmm. I literally hate to go to weddings mm-hmm. because people just drive me crazy. We need to get you security. I never, ever, ever give people stock picks. And the reason is very simple. The most important part of stock investing is conviction. What I have conviction for, I cannot relate to you by giving you a stock pick. So let's say I told you my greatest stock is XYZ. I, it's my biggest holding. I have, I have so much conviction for XYZ, I, every dollar I have is in XYZ. Now, you go home and say, oh, my gosh, that's so exciting. And you put $20,000 in XYZ. Mm -hmm. A week from now, it's down 9%. You're going to sell it. Well, you're going to call me up and drive me crazy. Yeah, I might have choice words for you at the next wedding. You probably will, right? The answer is I see a decline in XYZ of 9% as just as par for the course. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a buying opportunity. Look, since the Ukrainian war and since the beginning of the year, I've seen some of my favorite stocks go on sale by 30 to 50%. Guess what? They're not on sale anymore. But when they were, I was buying them because I have conviction for these stocks. I know what they do. I know what I don't know, but I can project what these companies will do for the world in the next 10 years. And therefore... I'm not, I don't love to see my stocks go down, but mm-hmm. I know that this is just part of the normal course of investing. If I relay that stock pick to somebody else without him having that level of conviction, he's probably going to make a mistake. And I don't do anybody a favor by setting them up to make a mistake. So my answer is don't. Just don't do it. Don't buy a stock just because somebody told you to because nine times out of ten, Unless the thing goes straight up, you're going to end up hurting yourself. Did anyone approach you at the beginning of the Russia-Ukrainian war and say, hey, is now a good time to invest? And you, did you tell, what did you tell them and did they listen? The answer is yes. Well, many of my clients mm-hmm. were asking me, is this a good time to invest? Is this time to take money out of the market? Is it time to add money to the market? And so on and so forth. So somebody who's entering a market like this with this level of volatility has a couple of choices. One is I just say, if you're new to this, right, it's like the first time you're jumping into the pool, it may not be the best time to dive in headfirst because the volatility is elevated and therefore your emotional upheaval is going to be higher as a new person into the market. The regret factor may be very high because the day you get in, the next day, the market could drop 4% and you can kick yourself and there's a higher chance, there's a higher degree of chance that you're going to make a mistake. So the first thing I look at is, you know, what's this person's history in the market? How much experience do they have? 
what's their psychological and emotional temperament, right? And we're talking here about a client or a prospective client. The second thing is, so if the client has very little experience, the answer is, let's do something. Staging into the market in a market like this is not a bad idea. By the way, even before the Ukrainian war, we entered 2022 with a market that had a fairly elevated price-to-earning multiple, which in English means was a little bit expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, We had seen a tremendous year in the two years prior. We saw 20-plus percent returns, which are abnormal for the S&P. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the market's a little expensive right now. So anytime you enter an expensive market, you should be careful. On the other hand, doing nothing is never a good idea because some people just sit around and do nothing for years waiting for something to magically happen and it to become obvious that it's time to enter the market. The answer is start to become accustomed to the market. I say this to all new investors. Get used to it. So if you have X amount of dollars earmarked, take 10% of that and go in. And just, just, just deal with it. It's only 10%. Ride it out a little. See how you feel. See how you react. Watch the volatility and so on and so forth. And then either at a set interval or if the market takes a little bit of a retraction, put a little bit more in. Your goal is over 12 to 16 to 18 months, you should have stayed yourself into the market. And by then, God willing, all of this will be behind us. When someone puts their money into a CD, they give you a certain rate if you keep your money in six months, 12 months, 18 months. Now, there's no guarantee when it comes to the stock market. But when we talk about emotion and someone who puts money into a particular stock, into an index, is there a way to have them control themselves to remove to not remove the money from that so-called bet that investment so that they going in want to keep it there within the next 10 years they believe in the long-term success of this company right but in eight months if it does get a little bit turbulent what's what's stopping them from just pulling it out when emotion takes over what's stopping them is me Mm -hmm. this is what i get paid for Mm -hmm. um it's technically not that difficult to invest in the market. You can buy an index fund, call it a day. Very few people beat the S&P over the long term. Um, even the gurus on Wall Street, hedge fund managers, hardly ever beat the S&P over the long term. The S&P is an incredible wealth creation mechanism. Technically, it's easy to invest in the market. Practically, it's difficult for a lot of people. Not all, but a big subset of people. And that's because emotionally, it is very difficult to stomach the volatility of the market. I was once speaking at a conference, and questions and answers, a man raises his hand and says, with all due respect, Mark, I think that everybody in your industry are a bunch of crooks. I said, I perhaps agree with you, but I'm wondering why you think that. And he said to me, because you charge fees in down markets. Your clients are losing money and you're charging them fees. And I said, with all due respect, I think we're crooks for charging money in up markets. Because in an up market, you don't need your advisor. You need your advisor in a down market. 
In 2008, the Great Recession took the S&P down 52%. And I realized that everything that I had learned about finance was completely and utterly useless because my clients went from being completely normal, rational people to irrational people. The world was coming to an end. The banks were seizing up. We were going to go into the next Great Depression. Nobody can envision recovery at that time. And, but we all know that if you sold during the Great, Depre- during the Great Recession, right, where the S&P went as, l- the, the Dow went as low as 6,800, and today it's over 32,000, mm-hmm. it would have been a colossal mistake. I realized that I was not equipped with all my schooling and all the finance books I had read to actually help my clients because they all had gone completely loony. And for good reason. There was a lot to worry about. So I went back and I studied. I studied and studied. I studied psychology. I studied behavioral finance, which is the psychology of money. Because my narrative had to change. If I was going to help my clients stay, th- stay the course, I had to change that narrative. What I answered to this man was is that your advisor earns their fees in down markets because it's in down markets where people hurt themselves. In extreme up markets, they hurt themselves as well because human emotion, when it comes to investing, swings, it's a pendulum that swings from greed to fear. When it's sort of in the middle, it's fine. But when there are extremes, it's where, that's where the big mistakes happen. So when somebody is overly fearful, selling everything is the most natural thing to do. When the market is euphoric, buying and buying and buying is the most natural thing to do. The role of a financial advisor, if they're doing their job, is to bring equilibrium to their clients, to introduce greed when there's utter fear, and fear when there's utter, utter greed to bring the client back to a state of balance and to keep them invested. Because when you put together an investment plan, it's going to have to be built. It's like, it's like a car. You own a car, and there are all kinds of things in that car that aren't used all the time, but they're there for the kind of roads that you may encounter, the kind of weather you may encounter. Your windshield wipers are there for when it rains. Right, So your portfolio, when it's built, is built for all kinds of markets. And I tell my clients, the reason why you own bonds, for example, or the reason why we are diversified in your stocks, for example, is specifically for a market like this. Right? If we didn't anticipate a market like this, you'd be 100% in stocks and maybe you'd be 100% in technology stocks. So this is why we did it. That we're not meant to do anything right now because we anticipated there would be days like this or weeks like this or months like this. Very interesting. You mentioned behavioral finance, and I know this is something you taught at NYU. Um, let, let's get into that, the emotions behind investing and biases. We've spoken about a couple of the biases on uh, a podcast with Ellie Freed. Um what are some of the biases that people have and the emotions they have to be cognizant of as they invest? Right. So there are so many. Um, interesting, when I get to know clients, 
before I put a dollar to work. They don't realize this, but in retrospect, they do because I share it with them. I spend a lot of time asking them all kinds of questions. Um, I'm trying to learn about this person. I'm being a financial psychologist. Is that in person, on the phone, doesn't matter? I like to do it in person. In person? Yes. I like to um, gauge you know, what, what the client will be like during times of insanity. Uh-huh. Okay? I like to understand how they think and how they make decisions because all of this goes into not just the way I construct a portfolio but the narrative with which I use on my com- in my ongoing conversations with them. So there are many large biases that I see in people and that are prevalent, so to speak, and we could talk about a few of them. I, I didn't see Ellie's episode. I'm sorry. Oh, I, that's okay. We spoke about survivorship bias right. and uh, recency bias. Recency is obvious, right? right? Recency is whatever's happening now seems like it's always going right. to happen and it's terrible. Right. All right, so let me talk about a few. Okay. So let's start with the first, the first thing, which you can call it a bias or you can call it whatever you want, is the urge or the belief that there's a way to time the market. That there's just got to be a time to buy and a time to sell. And that it's so blatantly obvious that now is not a time to buy or that now's a time to sell or now is a time to buy and now is a time to sell. And the media, they, they bombard you with this. They bombard you with all these talking heads who claim to know that the market's going to do this and the market's going to do that. And then if, you don't need, if, if that's not enough, they tell you what the genius hedge fund guys are doing. All oh, the hedge funds are all going short the market or they're all going long the market. And you think that all this information actually should dictate what you do or don't do. And the fact of the matter is, and you can quote me on this, nobody has a clue. Nobody has a clue. If anybody knew what the market's going to do this week, next week, this year, number one, they'd be billionaires. Number two, they wouldn't be telling you. They have no idea. Okay? I, use, I love this example because it's so recent, right? If I would have told you, Ellie, I'm not just a rabbi, I'm a prophet. It's January 1st, 2020. My prophecy tells me mm-hmm. that this year we're going to have one of the worst pandemics in the history of mankind. Economies are going to shut down. Supply chains are going to come to a grinding halt. Unemployment's going to go from 3% to double digits. Okay. Um, millions of people are going to die, and we're going to be shuttered in our homes. And I said to you, Ellie, you want to be in the market or not? Sell everything. Sell everything. <laughs> right? I sell everything. Yeah. One of the greatest rallies in the history of the market took place in a year where, unfortunately, people were on ventilators. Now, does that make any sense to you? No. The answer is, you have no idea. You have no idea how the market's going to react. You have no idea how investors are going to react. You have no idea how the world is going to play out. Oil is going to $200 a barrel, right? It might, it might not. I can give you five reasons why it does, and I can give you five reasons why it won't. And therefore, if you're going to maneuver your entire portfolio around what you think the price of oil is going to be three weeks from now, good luck. 
So the first thing is, we, as an investor, you have to get this notion out of your head that there's a time that you can buy and time to sell and that you somehow know and that you should listen to your instincts or your gut. Don't. So is Mark Horowitz in a corner office spinning a die as to what he should tell his investors? Because, again, you've painted such a great picture as if no one knows, then why do they need to be on the phone with you? If you're guessing, I might as well just guess without the fees. I'm not guessing. No one knows in the short term. No one knows in the mm-hmm. short term. Nobody knows what the market's going to do tomorrow morning. Even the future numbers, an hour before, mm-hmm. don't necessarily indicate where the market opens. Nobody knows in the short term. But it's not that complicated to know in the long term. The drivers of the market over the long term are fairly consistent and knowable. So what I'm saying is, is that this urge to do something in the short term because it feels right, 99% of the time doesn't work out. Okay? That's number one. A person has to become, as the founder of my former firm, Sanford Bernstein, used to say, you have to be humble. You have to say, as much as I think I know, I actually don't know. And therefore, I'm investing for the long term, and I should stick that way. Let's take another one. Um, I used to do this with audiences, and it's a lot of fun. So I'm going to send Yaakov out of the room okay. for this one because I'm going to use you as my second example. Okay. Okay. So this is this um, is called Meet Steve. Okay. And I'm going to I want you to envision this person, Steve. Steve is a friend of mine. Steve is a very meticulous person. He um, extreme attention to detail. He's so much shy and reserved. He wears a Tweed jacket, um, dark green, dark green tie, very conservative tie, brown shoes, brown mm-hmm. shoes, um, and very, very tidy, very um, punctual, and so on and so forth. Right? You have a picture of my friend mm-hmm. Steve. Sure. Wonderful. Do you think Steve's a salesman, salesman, or a librarian? The latter, libra- librarian. He's a librarian, right? Yeah. He just absolutely right. Loves to read. Okay. Yaakov, come in. Okay. All right. Have a seat. I'll I'll, I'll lean over, but it's yeah. We're gonna ask you the same question we just asked your brother. Okay. Except, I'm gonna preface it with just one piece of information. Okay. Okay. In the United States of America, according to the last census, you could check my numbers later if my memory is good there are 13 million people employed as salesmen. There are 166,000 librarians. Put another way, in a population of 13,166,000 people, if you randomly grab the person off the street, there's a 98.8% chance that that person is a salesman and only a 1.2% chance that they are a librarian. Got that? Yeah, I got that. I have a friend. His name is Steve. He's a very tidy individual. Wears a tweed jacket, green tie, very punctual, very meticulous. You think he's a salesman or a librarian? I would say salesman. Why? The amount of people that you just said that are salesmen, chances are I'm going to walk into a salesman. 
What do you think, Ellie, now? He doesn't have two jobs, does he? No. He's not a traveling salesman selling books. Um, yeah, given given that data point, I'm leaning towards him likely being a salesman. I'd be foolish to say a librarian, given right. the numbers. Exactly. Now, I never said he's the greatest salesman. All right, I, all right. He could be a mediocre salesman, or there are many, many salespeople who actually fit. I, I would venture to say there are probably, out of the 13 million salesmen, probably half a million who actually look exactly like Steve or fit Steve's profile. We know many salespeople who don't fit the salespeople profile. Right. Mm-hmm. So the difference between your answers, where I've done this with audiences all around the world, and it's consistent. The people who get what's called the base rate fact before, which is what I gave him, almost 98% of the time say he was a salesman. The people who don't use their gut and say, of course he's a librarian, right? Now, this is a very powerful bias. And we could spend the rest of the episode showing you how this affects investing. But this is called representation bias. I look at something and I see what it represents. And then... I make a snap decision. Let me give you a cute example, okay? My wife comes home from the store, and she's all excited because she just bought a dress. And she says, I got a bargain. I said, you did? Yeah. This dress was $2,000, and now it's only $500. (laughs) And to prove it, she shows me her label on the dress. And it says, 2,000 slash... Right, fifteen hundred slash one thousand slash five hundred. Is that a bargain? Fifteen hundred dollars saved. That's right, exactly. I always say to her, it's actually not a bargain, right? If it was worth two thousand dollars, it wouldn't have been in Woodbury Common, right? It would have sold for two thousand. You paid what the price was. But now let's just stop and look at that label for a second. That label is a representation bias right there. It's telling you what you should believe this dress is worth. The same way Steve's externalities told you he's a librarian, this label told you bargain. Mm -hmm. Let's take that same dress, let's hang it up in the same store on a different rack, and let's try the following. $100 slash $250 slash $500. Let's hang the same dress, one with the original label that my wife bought and one with this new label. And do you think the second dress is going to sell? Probably not as well. It won't sell. The easier is I'm not going to buy a dress that's marked up. I'll buy a dress that's marked down. Mm-hmm. I bought a $2,000 dress for $500. I'm not buying a $100 dress for $500. Now, why does this happen? This is the, this is the psychology of it is that the answer is no one has a clue what a dress is worth. Do we? Well, technically, the cost of the cloth, a couple of bucks, 10 bucks, 15 bucks. I don't know where it was sewn in Sri Lanka, Malaysia. I have no idea, but wherever it is, the cost of the labor, the shipping. And what is it actually worth? No one has a clue. When we don't know what something is or what it's worth 
and we're grasping, we use our instinct. Our instinct tells us if something marks, is marked down, it's a bargain. If something's marked up, I'm getting ripped off. Well, in truth, neither of them matter. It's what the dress is worth that matters. Right? When you introduce base rate facts into finance, such as, as I did with your brother Yaakov, it reorients the person, recalibrates the person to what's actually important and what's not, and then they make a completely different decision based on real information instead of pure emotion. Let's see how this plays out in investing because I see it all the time. The price of a share of Berkshire Hathaway Class A shares today, I believe closed on Friday at 538000 and change per share. Okay? Most people would say that's an expensive stock. $538,000 a share, that's an expensive stock. Mm-hmm. Okay? A man came over to me years ago. Um, in also at a wedding and it's a relative of mine so I made an exception and I gave him a stock pick he says to me um, my nephew got uh, money for his bar mitzvah I want to teach him about stock investing I'm thinking of buying him a stock that he can just watch and be connected to and I told him to buy him Amazon mm-hmm. and Amazon was $1,200 a share whatever the number was well, he, I met him again um, a couple of years later, and he says to me, I never really did anything with his bar mitzvah money. What do you think I should do with the money? I said, well, I told you it's time to buy Amazon. You didn't. I still think you should. He goes, but now it's $2,400 a share. I said, yes. So? He goes, well, I figured even at $1,200 a share... I could buy 100 shares of something else. Why would I just buy one share of Amazon? Mm. And I, see, I hear this from people all the time. Now, my brother was a pretty smart guy. And I said to him, if you think that way, you'll probably meet me in a year or two and Amazon will be $3,600 a share and you'll ask me the same question. Many people think that the value of a, the price of a share tells you something about a stock. It tells you absolutely nothing. Berkshire Hathaway at $538,000 a share is a far less expensive stock than most stocks in the stock market. The last time I checked, I think it's trading at 10 12 to 12 times earnings. Mm-hmm. The, there are many stocks that are trading at 30, 40 times earnings where the price is $20 or $25. Now, some people will say, why would I buy 538000 for one share when I can buy hundreds and thousands of shares of something else? Well, the answer is stocks are not eggs. Right? It doesn't work that way. The price of a stock tells you nothing, but that's a representation bias. And somebody may say, oh, I'm going to buy Amazon now because they just split the stock or they're going to split the stock, but that's ludicrous. Now, let's go back to the label. I look at a company. It was trading at 60, and it's trading at 20. Oh, my God, it's a bargain. I feel like buying it. No, it's not. 
It's not a bargain. How do you know it's a bargain? It might be a bargain. It might not be a bargain. Where it was six months ago or a year from now tells you absolutely nothing. It might have been wildly overpriced six months ago. And it might still be wildly overpriced at 20. Reminds me of Bitcoin a little bit when you talk about the pricing. But just think about it. How many people look at the 52-week high and see the stock chart and think this is a bargain? Mm -hmm. The answer is it tells you nothing until you do more research. And then you go to the flip side. I don't want to buy the stock now. It's at an all-time high. right? So that's the dress that's been marked up. The answer is the dress may be worth a lot more this, its history of price is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So these are the types of things, representations that I see, just like Steve tripped you up mm-hmm. because you thought he's for sure a librarian. But when you get actual facts and metrics and you do more research and then you go back and look at a company, you're looking at it with a different set of eyes that your brother Yaakov did because he heard the odds going in. That's another example of a bias. And now, quick word from someone and something incredible. Approvedfunding.com. They are a mortgage banker that prides itself for the past 35 plus years. Not as long as Kol Chabad, which is 225 years, but still 35 years at this game. They provide hands-on real estate and financial advice. Look them up, Shmuel Shiowitz. He's a 25-year veteran in the space. He's the president. He leads the company. He's passionate. He's actually awesome on social media. Shmuel's the, the opposite of a red flag. You know, when, when we deal with advertisers, you know, even if the company's great, if the people we're dealing with are just not easy to deal with, we're like, mm, do we want to provide But when we talk to him, he, he's so easy to talk to. He's clear. He's concise and gets to the point. And I think that's what he does with approved funding. Yeah, someone came over to me in Shul Synagogue last week and said, I actually called him, had a great conversation. He called him about, I think, uh, something other than a residential mortgage. But Shmuel knew so much about it. He was uh, very enlightening. So let them know. The, your or his friends at Kosher Money sent you approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. You can also call Shmuel 800-475-0123 and he'll waive all the bank fees exclusions apply. And without further ado, back to Reb Naftali Horowitz. In today's day and age, even if a stock is very expensive or or it costs a lot of money per share. You're still able to buy slivers and slices and pieces of that. So Correct. someone who does want to invest and believes in the Berkshire Hathaway company doesn't need f- to be liquid $538,000 to invest in well, Warren Berkshire Buffett's Hathaway company. Berkshire created a B-class for that reason, uh-huh. for investors that can't fork over 538000 It's a very exclusive club of people right. that own a share of A. They get invited to the annual conference. Right. It's like a status to own a share of Berkshire Hathaway. But this you can start to see why investing could be fun, but you can also see why it could be emotionally challenging. Um, if somebody wants to invest more than just indexing or even indexing, but wants to stop themselves from making mistakes, it's important for them to read or it's important for them to have people in their lives that can serve as a voice of reason. And if you have enough money to hire an investment advisor, one of the most important things about an investment advisor is that they are able to have this narrative with you. And when you're gonna get irrational for whatever reason, 
you want to make sure that they're the right person to talk you off that ledge um, and not to make those mistakes. I'll tell you an interesting story in 2008. Um, it was it was horrible. There's no there's no other way to say it. It was a horrible horrible period in the market, and it was a horrible time to be a financial advisor or an investor. I had a client. Um, she was the CFO of a publicly traded company, so a very smart woman. She called me up hysterical. She said, "Sell everything. Uh, the market's just going to completely get wiped out." Um, Are you legally obliged to do as she says? Absolutely. Uh-huh. There's no there's no question. If a client says, I want you to sell everything and you don't, you, you're liable. Uh-huh. I mean, it's her money. It's uh-huh. not my money. Um, you, your job there is to get her to a state of rationality. It was, it's a longer conversation how I did that, but she ultimately stayed the course. Two years later, or maybe more than two years later, she's a smart woman. She wrote down the value of her account on the day that I talked her off the ledge. Mm-hmm. And she put it in her drawer. And she opened up her account statement two or three years later, and she calculated the difference between what she was worth and what she would have been worth had she capitulated at that time. And she wrote me the most beautiful letter, which I still have. And it says, Dear Mark, I am writing to thank you for the four million six hundred and seventy-two dollars and eighty-seven cents that I have, that I would have not had, had I not you not taken the time to have that conversation with me. And she wrote the date, and she signed it. And that's my job. Mm-hmm. That's my job. My job is to help my clients navigate the markets, um, setting up their allocations, but then more importantly stopping them from hurting themselves. But ultimately, you have to do what a client wants. Do clients call you up when these newer investment opportunities come about? We mentioned Bitcoin before. Do they call you up and say, hey, what do you think about it? Hey, I got a really hot tip from my nephew. Um, How do you answer them? And is it something that you push people towards? So... Every client is different, and every investor is different. But let's just, in my practice, I work with people who fall into the I am wealthy enough category. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, this is another thing, which is an outflow of my work in behavioral finance. I'll give you an example. Um, take a guy who is down in his luck, and he's got 50 bucks in his pocket or 20 bucks in his pocket, and that's all he has. And go up to him and say, listen, I'm going to flip a coin. Heads, I take what's ever in your pocket and I multiply it by five. 50 becomes 250. Tails, you lose it. Right? Most people will take the bet because I got 50 bucks to lose. $250 changes my life. In that situation, mm-hmm. go to Warren Buffett, or I, I, I can't I can't tell you if Elon Musk would take this bet or not because I can't figure out what he would do. Mm-hmm. But Jeff Bezos or or um, Bill Gates, and say, "Hey, Billy boy, I got a deal for you. I flipped this coin. Tails, I wipe you out. Heads, you so blow 
Elon Musk out of the water, that there's no way he'll ever catch up to you. I'll take your 60 billion, I'll turn it into 500 billion, trillion, doesn't matter. He'll look at you like you have two heads. Mm-hmm. He'll say you're out of your mind. There's no way. Why? The reason is because at some point, the utilitarian value starts to flatten and go down. In other words, if you take a guy who's worth $100 million and you give another $100 million, maybe he feels good about himself for a week, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change his life at all. Mm-hmm. So why would he risk that which he already has to get something which does nothing for him? Going back to biases, one of the most powerful biases is regret aversion. Regret aversion means that I am afraid of doing something that I will regret because the pain of regret is 10 times, this is scientists have figured this out, than the joy of winning, right? So think about it. If somebody is already rich enough and they gamble and they lose, the regret is far more powerful than the euphoria if they win. And I keep bringing this to the forefront with my clients. This is why Warren Buffett won't take the bet and the guy in the street may take the bet. With that as a backdrop, here's my conversation. Mr. Client, whatever you think about Bitcoin or don't think about Bitcoin, whatever it is that you're, how much were you thinking of investing? If it's a benign amount and you're just doing it for the fun of it and it won't make a difference and you won't kick yourself and say, what an idiot I was, go for it, have fun. If not, right, in other words, if, if and if you win, it isn't going to change your life. So it, it's, it's no different than going down to the casino and having a little fun. If you're going to enjoy it and you're not going to beat yourself up, there's no harm in it. You want to take a flyer on this stock or your brother-in-law just told you about this company? If you size your position in such a way that it's not going to make a difference to you either way, go for it. You're obviously not going to bet the farm because if you're betting the farm, then you're flipping a coin, right? My clients fall into the I am rich enough category. And the first question I ask them, what do you need it for? I have clients who will tell you that I've saved them. I'm not joking, tens of millions of dollars from terrible investments because I always start the conversation. What do you need this for? And they can really answer that question. And they all, I, I, I always take them to the place of, let's imagine this investment goes really, really sour because there is a chance that it could. And you lost $10 million. How will you feel? I'd hate myself. Wonderful. And if you doubled your money, it wouldn't change my life. So why are you doing it? What do you need this for? And they inevitably walk away. Because they realize that they've reached a point in their life where time, peace of mind, serenity are the most important things. At some point in your life, if you have enough, more doesn't change anything. But And risking what you already have to get more, which doesn't change anything, which puts at risk your serenity and your peace of mind and the way you treat your wife that day after you lose the money and you beat yourself up for weeks over it, how could I have been such an idiot or so trusting or whatever it is? It's just not worth it. And many times when I have these conversations with clients, we come to the decision that 
it's just not worth it. That's my job. The sages say, it's powerful stuff. The sages say if someone has 100, they want 200. And if they want 200, they want, if they have 200, they want 400. Is that where that initial drive comes from? When they have 10, 20 million dollars and they're calling you up and you're sort of putting them back into focus? Yes. So I write about this in my book. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's a very, very powerful thing. You Revealed? Yes. That's the name of the book. book. You Revealed, there is a chapter that discusses this never-ending chase for more, um, which is a spiritual chase. God gave us this emptiness so that we constantly grow and seek out. But some people use that to just build things that have no utilitarian value. As I said, if 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 you're not going to spend this money and it's not changing your life in any way. It's just a number on a statement. And it's not even enough for you because your next-door neighbor just has more than you. Then you're chasing an, a, a goal, which is ne- it's just elusive. It's never going to happen. So, yeah, I, there's a big spiritual component to what I do with my clients. And they're far from all being Jewish. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day... People are looking for the same things. They're looking for happiness and contentment and peace of mind. And sometimes they look in the right places and sometimes they look in the wrong places. And money is a very highly charged topic. Um, it brings out the best and the worst in people. It brings out the, sometimes the greatest irrationalities. Um, my job is to temper that and to bring focus into people's lives. I sometimes sit with couples and we think this is going to be a discussion about their money it ends up being a discussion about their marriage Mm. and they're literally at each other's throats you spend too much you're too cheap and they and they're sitting there and they're they're wealthy enough and none of this matters and i literally just change roles and i become a, a marriage counselor to talk about what money is and what what they've hoped retirement would look like and this isn't what you worked your whole life for is this mm-hmm. that you should check on her and she should check on you and you should be fighting over stuff that doesn't even matter and i talk to my clients this way because money just it creates this irrationality and it it, it this charged environment with 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 people which it shouldn't it shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. and when you're in that place that's when you make your biggest mistakes that's when you become irrational very interesting. I know you do a lot of work with poverty alleviation. You sit down with couples that may not have means to an end and they're struggling to pay back debt. What are some of the frictions you see within those couples and are there any similarities when it comes to money between people that have a lot of it and people that don't have any of it? So there are some similarities and there are many, many differences. Um, the similarities are that whenever there's stress in life, right, it sometimes brings out sides of us that we would rather not be there, right? When we're tired, we're hungry, we had a very bad day, whatever it might be, it brings down our resilience, um, our willpower to override our bad traits, um, our areas, our shortcomings, our areas of development, and so on and so forth. 
So poverty um, stresses over how to pay bills and so on and so forth sometimes exasperate you know, these differences in marriages. And then on the flip side, wealth could do the same thing, right? Wealth um, can build ego. It can build a sense of entitlement. Um, there could be a lot of friction around how wealth should be spent, how it should be given away, all the moral and ethical questions that wealth creates. Um, and it enables people to get away with things that they probably couldn't have gotten away with otherwise. So whenever you introduce these types of dynamics into a marriage, it will create difficulties, which in many ways could be similar. Um, and, you know, it's easy to pity or have uh, compassion for people that are struggling because they lack money. But I have just as much compassion over people that have a lot of money, and it's destroying their lives. And <laughs> I see it all the time. It, it, it literally destroys their lives. And as I write in my book, I've heard from many clients over the years that we were just happier as a couple when we had much less. And I believe them. I could see it. I see it with my very eyes. So I have compassion on both mm. because it's a stress. It's a stress point. It's a, it's a point of tension between the husband and the wife or the parents and the children, for example. Right? Children who don't get enough are, can be compatible with their parents. And people, children that get too much can be compatible with their children, with their parents. It, it's, you see very similar dynamics. Um, and a lot of the work that I do with my clients helps me with what I do with my non-clients. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's human nature, it's psychology. And you'll find it, it's uniform across religions, across um, dynamics, countries. It's, it's, profoundly, it, it's, it's profound to see how humans are humans. At the end of the day, there's so much that we share in common um, and that we can relate and money or lack of doesn't really change all that much about us. Let's end with a question about a piece of advice that you've been given uh, throughout your life. You've been at this for a while, whether financial related or not. What's something that you would want to share with the audience? Um, hopefully tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands will end up listening to this. If you can leave them with a parting message, what, what's something that has resonated with you? So I think that everything that we've talked about today comes down to how we think. And in, 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 the, in, the, um, Hebrew, in the Hebrew um, language, the word king is spelled mem lamot chaf, right? And the word is melech, which means king, right? And the Kabbalists tell us that the mem is moach, moach is brain, lamet is lave, heart, and chaf is kaved, your, your extremities, your mm -hmm. lower self. And that a king is a person who can control their emotions with their brain and use both their brain and their emotion to control their lower urges. Okay? Successful investing, successful living, successful relationships need both mind and heart. It needs emotion. It needs feeling. 
But sometimes feelings and emotions can take us awry. And the brain, information, facts, base rate facts, mm-hmm. knowledge about a company. Um, let's take representation bias. Mm-hmm. What's the worst possible representation bias that exists? Stereotyping, racism, hatred. You look at a person, you know nothing about them, you know nothing about their family, their struggles, you don't know whether they, they spend their nights um, volunteering in a soup kitchen, mm-hmm. and in one second you make a decision. I like them or I don't. They're good or they're bad. They're dangerous or they're safe. Think about all of these labels that are representation labels that we slap upon people without giving it even one second thought. Right? So my advice is always to gather good information and don't allow pure emotion and pure feeling to dictate the decisions that you make. Because if you do, you're going to make a lot of bad decisions in life. Read books, fill yourself with knowledge, and always introduce information the way I taught you today into your investing decisions, into your relationship decisions, and then and only then make your decisions. That is the best advice I can give people. Develop your thinking skills. Something I talk about in my book, something that is never-ending, and it has profound advantages to the way you live your life in all areas. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Horowitz. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed another edition of Kosher Money. Could we just talk about the the amount of celebrity? I don't know. Yeah, we we did create a celebrity here. I don't know. We created him. No, it was solely. No, he's everywhere. (laughs) But the amount of 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 people reaching out, like we kind of feel bad for him. Like how many? And he he's such a kind person. He wants to help as many people that reach out. But um. You know, something he mentioned in the first episode, like, oh, if you need a book, I'll give you a book. But like, he's like, okay, I just practically, like, I don't have enough books at this point. Right. They have to like reprint them. People are coming over to him in synagogue across the, uh, in the street. Like, hey, Naftali, I know you from Kosher Money. But he's been on so many podcasts now. Um, but, but please do us a favor. Don't go to his house. Don't like, at most reach out to him through, yeah. through the email on the bottom here. But, you know, he has a life. He has a job and he wants to help people. But also, I don't know, there's a lot of people out there that enjoyed his first episode. So, we, so go easy on him. When we finished recording, he said, you know, we could have done another hour easy. I said, I know, I know, but I got to space this out. We can't have two, three hour episodes. But I, I do see him as being someone who we can practically have on every season totally totally he he also has stories every time he comes in he says you know what happened to me yesterday two days ago and like i said in the intro he's so eloquent he's easy to listen to it's almost like you can play his voice and it will calm you it's very soothing maybe you should have like a yoga meditation app maybe led by i like that and speaking about soothing voices if you're listening to this podcast on apple or spotify or watching on youtube well if you're driving somewhere and there's not good Wi-Fi but there's good cell service, you could call the Living Lachai number and listen to Kosher Money there. You call 712-432-3489. We actually have a number in Israel and we have a number in the UK as well. That'll be in the show notes. So yeah, give a listen. And, and if you know someone that doesn't have a smartphone, doesn't really have good internet connection, you could give them our numbers. Sure. And and Reverend Aftali Horowitz's first episode was watched by dozens, people in dozens of countries. Oh, so, so he, it's fa- very far reaching. Uh, he's a really, really good guy. If you have any questions for him, uh, we're going to drop his email address 
um, from our friends at livingsmarterjewish.org into the show notes. If you're watching this on YouTube and you're like, hey, I really like these kosher money guys, subscribe on YouTube. Hit up our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're on so many different podcast platforms. Check out Living L'Chaim's other shows at livinglechaim.com. So much more coming your way. That's it for this week. My name is Ellie Langer. And I'm Yaakov Langer. And we're the Linger Brothers. No, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just not hear the whole episode because of that one. No. It's like the Jonas Brothers. We're uh, the no, Jewish. No, no. It's going worse. I think you can go like the Wright Brothers. Oh, no. But, this yeah. airplane's crashing. See you later. Until next week, keep your money kosher. The Kosher Money Podcast is hosted by Ellie Linger, run by Zevi Woolman, Ellie Linger, and myself, Yaakov Langer, and it is produced by Living L'Chaim. For more awesome podcasts and shows, check out livinglechaim.com, check us up on YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Living L'Chaim.